You're listening to WHTT Speaks Out. Each week, Chuck Carlson and members of We Hold These Truths look into events that are, for the most part, ignored or overlooked by the mainstream media. And we analyze these events to get free and periodic updates to this program and our other interesting programs. Be sure to enter your email address in the subscribe to WHTT box on the right side of our website, whtt.org. And now... Ready, set, let the sparks fly. In today's WHTT Speaks Out, we've got a really interesting program. Sadly, millions of American Christians have no idea what's going on in Israel and with the Palestinians, and even to that extent that many Christians don't even realize that there are brothers and sisters in Christ that are Palestinians, that are Arabs, and that live in Palestine. And so we're very fortunate today to have a theological student, and I'm going to introduce Craig Hansen, who is a friend of our guest, who just returned from a trip into Israel, and I think he's got some really interesting observations. Craig, thanks for finding our guest for us, and I'm going to let you introduce our guest. Well, thanks, Tom. It is a pleasure to be with you guys tonight. I'm going to introduce to you Isai Garcia. I've known Isai for uh, about seven years now, and in fact, he married my daughter's best friend, so we've had a close family connection for several years. Uh, Isai presently is attending Pacific Lutheran Theological Seminary in Berkeley, California. He's working on a Master's of Divinity program, and he's now in his third year. When I met Isai, I didn't have to convert him. He already had a pretty good understanding of what Christian Zionism is all about, so we were able to, to share that and that the friendship has just grown through the years. In fact, Isai was with me in one of my first vigils with uh, We Hold These Truths in San Leandro, California, several years ago. So uh, with that, I'd like to introduce Isai Garcia to you and let him uh, tell about his journey. Thank you very much, Craig. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here in the program. And I know the work you do and the work everyone else does. So from me to you, thank you for doing the work and just continue on spreading the word out there. As far as me, I, I was born in a evangelical Pentecostal type of home with the typical pro-Israel and the equivocation between biblical Israel and the state of Israel type of thing going on there. So for me, it was pretty natural to join together the present state of Israel as the people of God with the biblical Israelites being the people of God. Of course, there's distinctions there. We know this, but... <laughs> Nevertheless, first time I really began questioning, I guess, or looking for more nuanced perspectives on that was in college. Uh, that's when I uh, had a <laughs> – it began with a, basically with a crush on an Israeli friend of mine. Oh, that'll do it And uh, I told – I asked her, you know, okay, you know, you know uh, you're an Israeli Jewish – well, she would call herself um, Messianic Jew. So what books would you recommend? And I asked her about information, stuff like that. And uh, she lent me a book by a scholar out at Moody Bible Institute. I forgot the man's name, uh, but it was uh, describing the Israeli-Arab conflict. And it was the typical, the, the Israel, Israel right now are the heirs of the land, biblical mandate, that type of thing. Uh, these are the end times, and they are, it, the state of Israel is fulfilling the prophecy of the coming Messiah, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. 
I was surprised by that at the time because I, I expected maybe an Israeli source, a Jewish source, not an evangelical Christian Jew, nevertheless, living here. Mm-hmm. So that stuck out to me at the time. So after that book, <laughs> I read the book by the Jimmy Carter, okay. Israel, Peace, Not Apartheid. That one was a very interesting book, and I actually shared it with my <laughs> She wasn't too pleased. <laughs> Just seeing the word apartheid on the title was an offense. So we didn't really talk much about the book. <laughs> She said, oh, okay, and I just, that expression on her face just really changed. So after that, I just did my own investigation because I found it really interesting to get that reaction from her, just giving her the book, and here it is. So I read up on um, different scholars, and there's an evangelical scholar named uh, Gary Burge, and he wrote a book, uh, Whose Land, Whose Promise, and uh, I read a little bit of that and other sources on the Internet, that type of thing. But then when I met you, <laughs> that's when I really thought, okay. And then I went to the vigil with you and got to see Kufi in action and just really this rally style type of an event, just really surface level type of engagement. That surprised me. It was an obvious agenda to prop up the state of Israel as the fulfillment of prophecy, what Christians should support no matter what. That in itself is pretty, for me, it's eerie. Just support no matter what, really? Okay, no questioning here? No, I don't know about that. So I began my uh, my studies here at school at the, at the City Lutheran Theological Seminary, which is a part of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. And that denomination is very much Palestinian-supported. It supports the Evangelical Lutheran Church in Jordan and the Holy Land. So they're sister uh, denominations. So this January, uh, January 6th through the 20th, I got to go to Israel to actually test out some of these ideas that, uh, that I have accumulated to this point. It was uh, just an experience I, I will never forget. It's a place I've been wanting to visit since I was a kid, hearing the Bible stories all throughout college and present day. So what caught my attention first was when I landed, there was a lot of quotes along the wall heading toward a baggage claim. And it had it explicitly said Zionism on one of the quotes on there, if I remember correctly. So from the very beginning, there was that atmosphere of, okay, this is something more than just state of Israel. There's some religious type of fundamentals going on here. So I was like, okay, that's good out. And then uh, we went to the, on a bus route. Well, before all that, there was a group of 30 of us from school and about eight seminarians. So it was a group of alumni, friends, seminarians, and friends seminarians. And the group leaders were four, but one stands out because he's a Palestinian Christian. He grew up as a Malkite Christian. Yes. I don't know if you're here know about that, but I'm going to explain that. Yeah, go ahead. We know the term, but put a definition to it. Thanks. Okay. So a Malkite Christian uh, denomination, it's under the Catholic Church, under the Catholic umbrella, and yet it keeps its Orthodox Christian liturgy. So it worships as an Orthodox Christian or Eastern Orthodox Christian, but under the Catholic authority. It's not that. That's what that is. So Pastor Gabby, as his name, uh, he grew up as a Melchite Christian, but then came to the United States, sponsored by the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, to become a Lutheran pastor. So that's how 
ELCA and the works of the Palestinian Christians through accompaniment and other things like that. But that's my trip. <laughs> so 30, about 30 of us went, and uh, we landed there. And uh, once we were at the airport, we headed off, off to Nazareth. Uh, obviously very meaningful <laughs> as a Christian. And there was a lot of big mix of old with the new. We went up there and then got to our hotel rooms, resting. I got up in the morning and then I saw a mosque straight ahead out of my window. <laughs> uh, later on, our, our guide told us that it's a mostly Palestinian town now. Very little Jews living there because there's uh, two Nazareth apparently. One that is poor and is occupied by Palestinians and another Nazareth that is more affluent and is mostly Jewish. So they kind of separate it. Uh, Nazareth a lot, if I remember correctly. I'm not sure. So we stayed there a couple of days, but we went around the area, too, on the bus. What stood out to me and our, what our guide told us was the limited supply to natural resources that Palestinians had. Oh, and our, Palestinian, our guide was Palestinian Catholic. So he knew a lot about the historical context so he started with a limited water supply. So he said that what Palestinians did in order to make up for the difference, I guess, is they would put big canisters of, of black canisters up on top of their roofs. They were huge. When, when I, I saw one on the floor, it was about as tall as me. I'm about 5'10", and wide, just really wide. It's like what we see with the well of people's backyard, just a holding tank like that. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, really big, and he said that the supply of water was so limited that maybe by the first week it was it was done. For the rest of the time, they would use these water canisters, containers, to get through the month, so they could get through the next month. This is still inside of Israel, right? This is in, yeah, Nazareth. Yeah, so Nazareth is part of the 1948 demarcation. Yeah, it's in northern Israel. Yeah, so once we got into the West Bank. Even more prominent, I, in one house, I counted, I don't know, 10 of these canisters on top of the roof, a three-story house with 10 canisters. And even going, going along that, too, there was a big contrast between the homes. Our guide told us the extremes that the Palestinian Christians went to to actually have a home. So what they did is the first floor would be bought by the father or the grandfather. The permits were not given by the Israeli government rather easily for them. They made it hard. So what they did is the father would take the second floor. Then the son would take the third floor. So they had to take years building each floor. It was still very haphazardly made, too. No resources, money was scarce, that type of thing. And when I spoke to Palestinians out there, um, they, <laughs> the first thing they would ask me, what is going on with you guys? Mm. Why did you vote in Trump? Why uh, are you doing this to us? And uh, it, it was very, that hit me, because as the United States is the big empire, it has a lot of responsibility. Christians even more so. Mm-hmm. And we're, it's a dereliction of duty, I would say, mm-hmm. uh, in no other sense. Yeah. So I had many of those type of conversations. So that's in the Nazareth. West Bank, it was even worse. Uh, we went into down to Jerusalem later on, and we stayed uh, four days there, and then we went down to Bethlehem for four days. 
in Bethlehem, that's where we saw a little bit more of the military presence. So we saw Palestinian army there. We saw the local police there. Very minimal Israeli army presence. So that was more in Jerusalem. And all throughout, uh, the, the general posture that we had was going into the Holy Land as a pilgrim. It wasn't as a tourist. It wasn't as sightseeing. It was as a spiritual journey to connect with our brothers and sisters out there. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, could I read something? Yeah. Quick? yeah. Um, I have a book here. It's called uh, Close to Renovation, On the Road to Emmaus, a Spiritual Guide of the Holy Land Toward a Permanent Pilgrimage. And we read this prayer. It's called the Pilgrim's Prayer every day before we went on our journey. And I'll read a little piece of it here. O Lord Jesus Christ, you simply said two words to the Apostle Peter, and he left everything behind him and followed you. From the very beginning, he was open to the possibility of having his identity and faith challenged. I, too, Lord, want to follow you. I am also open to the possibility of having my identity and faith perceptions challenged. I have come to seek you. I want to walk with you, see you, and hear your voice like the other disciples did. I surrender myself to you. And that's the posture we wanted to go into because we saw the streets filled with trash. We saw the roads that like, some were not paved, holes. We saw human beings in occupation. That's what we saw. Mm-hmm. At one point, we also had a, a presentation by a human rights nonprofit organization leader. And uh, he told us about the, the uh, a little bit more about occupation and the two types of law that is present there. One, uh, how uh, settlers are charged in a civilian court, how Palestinians are charged and sentenced in military court how the Israeli government uses the the draft for the army against Palestinians because Palestinians do not want to serve. But then if they don't serve, they can't be citizens. Oh, catch 22. Yes, it is. So (laughs) quite frankly, they're screwed. Yeah. They have nowhere to go legally. And then this, all this, as I went through this, was in the land of the Bible, the Holy Land, the land we call holy. (laughs) And that stood out to me. just Okay, what is holiness? What does the land mean in in this big scope of holiness? Why is it holy? Is it because God calls it holy or because the people that occupy that is holy? All these questions just roaming in my mind. And (laughs) I'm still processing right now. It's only been two months, but uh, I see faces now. I just don't see a Palestinian out there. Mm-hmm. I see faces. I see Pastor Gabby. I see our, our guide, Peter. Um, I see our bus driver, Muhammad. It just, it isn't vacuous. Mm-hmm. And being out there, that's what stood out to me. This is what we need. We need to see people. We need to see the humanity, the, the image of God in everyone. That's what we need for the, the ones that are so pro-Israeli that they kind of demonize the Palestinians. That's the vision that as children of God, as, as Christians, we should expand and, and perpetuate out there. 
So what I do now, I'm trying to get involved with locally a little bit more. Uh, there's a North Coast Coalition for Palestine group here, and um, I got met up with uh, their leader. She's a Palestinian Catholic. I had lunch a little while ago, and um, I'm trying to put my faith into practice. Okay, that's what really this pushed me toward. Because it's great to have a theory. It's great to have a conscience. But what is it without impacting the world? What is it without being an incarnational love of God in, in the world? It just means nothing. It really doesn't. And it takes courage. It takes really in, imbibing that love of God. So it's tough because I'm not myself, I'm not typically one that goes out there <laughs> and looks for arguments. Which, thank you for taking me on your first visual. That was, that was great. <laughs> But whoever I speak to, I try to say, okay, the, it's not only about seeing the biblical sites. It's not only about being there. It's about seeing the people there. Yeah. Ethai, that was a powerful uh, testimony of, about your trip there. And I'm sure we've got some questions. One of the things that you didn't mention that uh, sticks in my mind is while in Bethlehem, uh, we've mm-hmm. talked about this. There's an excellent movie entitled Open Bethlehem, and it's about the building of the uh, Israeli separation wall that basically is walling off the birthplace of our Savior. And so it's very difficult to get in, and I'm sure you had to go through checkpoints, but as a tourist, maybe you want to explain a little bit about that if you did, because a lot of times the tourists don't really see what the typical Palestinian people have to go through. There's over 600 checkpoints, for example, in the West Bank. Yeah, um, I, I did go through a checkpoint. Uh, I didn't go physically through it. I didn't walk through it. I went through the bus. But it was uh, checkpoint 300. So that's the infamous one there where Palestinians wait hours at a time just to get to the hospital or go get to school or anything, just to get to the other side. But yeah, I did get out at one point. The bus driver parked somewhere, and we all got out and touched that wall. It was a very powerful moment for me because of what it represented. And even then, there was this big concrete structure in front of me that just danced, very powerful. But on top of that, all these drawings were there of hope, of solidarity, of testimony, for instance, one that comes to mind right now is that uh, there was a woman that was about to give birth, and she had to cross this checkpoint, but she ha- she was turned back. She insisted she stayed there for hours, hours, waiting just to give birth to her child. And finally, she was let through, and the baby lived. But being put in that position, a pregnant woman in that position, just through the stress, the body, mentally, and add on top of that this occupying power and and this just oppression. It, it's evil. <laughs> There's no other word for it. It's evil how just life has, is sucked out of a, such a precious moment. So I thought of that. I read it as I, and as I looked at this wall. There was a big calligraphy up there written about it. I touched the wall and I just I prayed. I, I bring these walls down, Lord. Uh, these walls should not stand, that type of thing. Well, what was it like on the, uh, the Jewish side of the wall? Well, those are nicer. Uh, <laughs> they were nicely painted. 
They didn't have the barbed wire up at the top. They were a part of the settlement community. So I also got to visit a settlement, Gush Sion, I think it's called. And in 2014, that's when the state of Israel declared it state land. Oh. So I actually got to go in there and just drive around. The walls were painted nicely, like bone-colored, matching the houses and the homes, and complete opposite of what the other side held. So it was very, very visible. The Israeli side was very affluent and nice. It looked like homes here. And on the other side... Slums. Uh, so it was very impactful, very impactful moment. And, uh, yeah, I saw that all throughout that forum and everywhere in the West Bank where I went. Uh, Mr. Garcia, would you give us your opinion about how well informed the Palestinian people you met are? Do they, you mentioned that they, they knew about Donald Trump and they know about American elections. Did you consider them surprisingly well-informed, or did they need information? Or where did, how, do they, how do they stay informed inside uh, the conditions where they live? My impression was that they were very well-informed. Anything that impacted their lives, they will stay informed about. Uh, I, got, I got this impression the most at a Stinian uh, refugee camp. Oh, oh yes. Uh, they were ousted since 1948, so they're on their third, fourth generation there. Where was that? I was in Bethlehem. Okay. And we had a guide there that took us all around the area. And from him, I really got the impression that he was up to date. All the politics going on in the Middle East, the United States. <laughs> he had a quip. He said, well, it really didn't matter who you guys voted, Trump or Hillary. They both had the same policies, only that Hillary would have said it with a smile. <laughs> that struck a chord with one of the more conservative <laughs> people on the trip, and uh, I saw him struggling to, you know, contain himself. But that's the general impression I got with everyone else I spoke with. I, I didn't speak, frankly, with too many Palestinians. I was just going from site to site. But the ones I spoke to were very well informed. Yeah. Did you hear comments there about the U.S. wars in other Arab Countries such as Libya, Iraq, Syria, how do they view this? Not that I can recall right now. It was just generally more about the situation in the state of Israel and how just the whole system is rigged against them pretty much. How the schools, for example, they're segregated, not only boys and girls, but Arabs and Israelis, Arabic, Hebrew, everything is separated so the emphasis of the trip was mostly about the state of Israel itself. But I'm sure if I asked them about that, they would have given me their opinion and they would have been well informed. What you said really struck a chord with me about the military. Because uh, you say that Arabs living in the Palestinian side of the Green Wall, I guess, they're called to do military service, but they can opt out. Uh, but if they opt out, then they're treated as non-citizens. Is, is that what I understood you say? Yes, that's correct. That's what the NGO uh, representative, Mohammed, uh, told us, that we all know men and women serve in the Israeli military, but Palestinians refuse to serve the government that they're oppressed by. So, so we're talking about Arabs inside the Israeli border. Yes, so uh, Arab Israelis, I guess. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that they refuse to serve. So that just 
cuts them off from any rights and privileges they might have in the state of Israel, which is in Israel's favor because sure. then they just, okay, you're out of here. Just push them out. So they're marginalized citizens. Not, well, not even citizens, marginalized subjects of the Israeli government. And that struck a chord with me as well because they're in their own land and they can't live in it. Simple as that. I wonder what would happen to uh, Arab-Palestinian if they did choose to uh, be conscripted. Did, did you, has anyone ever talk about that? Or This NGO represented did say that there are instances, but they're rare, of Arab-Palestinians serving just because they do want to move on with their life. They want to actually attain some sort of livelihood. So they do it. There, there are instances, but it's very, very rare. Yeah. Just to clarify this, the Israelis refer to the Palestinians that are their citizen as Arab. They don't call them Palestinians. The ones that are in the occupied territories like West Bank and Gaza would be Palestinians. And certainly the Palestinians in the occupied territory would not have an opportunity to join the, the Israeli military. <laughs> That's correct, yes. Thank you for clarifying. I was just wondering... What is the general attitude of the people that you ran into? I mean, do they have a upbeat attitude? Are they distressed about their situations? What? How did you encounter them mentally? Uh, great question. Thank you for asking that. Uh, because all throughout the journey, in the beginning of the journey, was a lot of for me uh, a lot of despair going through the whole thing, seeing the situation myself. But then, toward the end of the journey. We visited schools and hospitals, and that's where I saw hope for the Palestinian people with the children. The children were at play. <laughs> we were walking through the school, and they were just high-fiving me, and they were saying, hi, how you doing? What's up? And trying to practice their English. <laughs> and I would just throw out a phrase in Arabic, and they would be, they would be upbeat and happy about it. And, and I would kneel down for the little ones, and I, I okay, high five. And they just lined up, and they were giving me a high five. <laughs> and then even with when we went to go eat at certain eateries, embracing, loving, hospitality. Actually, we had two instances in particular. We visited a, a Druze community, and they invited us to their home, all 30 of us. And they had a potluck wow. for us there. We had drinks. Uh, we had everything. They just opened up their home to us, and there was no sense of oppression, no sense of hatred, no sense of any ne- anything negative. It was hospitality and love, which to me really impacted me because that's what Christianity is supposed to be all about. <laughs> uh, right. Yeah, I didn't no sense of anger, no sense of despair at all. I saw a lot of I saw hope actually. Did you see any Christian Muslim? Either way, not that I noticed. In, in Bethlehem, it was very, it was um, multicultural, it was very multi-religious. We also went to Haifa, so there, that's it's very well known for its multi-religious atmosphere. Certainly, the people you talk to must be aware that the American foreign aid to Israel is military in nature, most of it, and that it's very, very large. And that the armaments and almost everything that is done there comes from some aid from the United States. What did they express to you about that? Did the people talk about that? They're certainly aware of it, aren't they? And 
How could they be so friendly to you? Do they separate the American government from the American people, or what did you conclude from that? Mm. Well, it does help that I'm a little darker and I had my beard, so I look Palestinian. <laughs> not, not, but more seriously, like, <laughs> more seriously though, our guide was very much aware of that. He got a master's in Finland or something in peace studies, and he was multilingual. He could speak Italian, Arabic, Hebrew, English. So he he was the the voice that we got to interact with the most. When we would be at a hospital, or he would say, oh, here, your American tax dollars at work, you know, and so he would, he would bring that up. But then we would go to, like, Golan Heights or something, and then there he would say, oh, your American tax dollars at work right here, you know, just all this, like, disaster going on up here. So, yeah, he wouldn't go into much more detail than that. From that, I gathered that he was very much informed about it, and everyone else would be, too. I, that's, that's what I gathered. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, thank you so much. That was a great overview of, of your visit there, and we really appreciate sharing this very important information with us. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. It was a pleasure to be here. I'd like to close again with that pilgrim's prayer. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, you simply said two words to the Apostle Peter, and he left everything behind him and followed you. From the very beginning, he was open to the possibility of having his identity and faith challenged. I, too, O Lord, want to follow you. I am also open to the possibility of having my identity and faith perceptions challenged. I have come to seek you. I want to talk with you, see you, and hear your voice, like the other disciples did. I surrender myself to you. Write your gospel in my heart. Open my mind to receive your grace. Help me gain a new insight into my true self. Help me relieve my anxieties and frustrations when things do not seem to go my way. Help me become a permanent pilgrim instead of a passing tourist. Teach me the way to embrace with love my brothers and sisters on this pilgrimage and in this land as you embrace to those you met, and ultimately, your cross. Lord, I have left family and friends behind. I ask you to keep them in your care and grace. Grant them patience and peace of heart, knowing that I am seeking a transformed spiritual relationship with you. I am following in your footsteps, O Lord, hoping that when I return home, I will be a better person than the one who set out. Amen. Amen. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcasts. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free, our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.